I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. British Pavilion shines a light on everyday urban customs at this year's Venice Architecture Biennale. Resident accuses a South London estate regeneration of social cleansing in high court battle. Bike storms under threat due to moral panic and unfair policing. And campaigners fight back over council bid to remove their plant pots. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here for a special edition of London recording in Venice is Jaden Alley. Jaden is an architect, Open City trustee, and one of the curators of the British Pavilion at the 2023 Venice Architecture Biennale. Welcome to the show. Wow. I am so hyped for this, Merlin. I am so, in the intro, I didn't know whether to interrupt you. I didn't know whether to, you say, oh, hi, it's Merlin Fortune. I want to go, brat, 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 brat. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, hi. Nice to have you. <laughs> Thank you. It means a lot. Here we are, 2023, the British Architecture Pavilion in yeah. Venice. So this Saturday marks the eagerly awaited opening of the 18th International Venice Architecture Biennale, an event that has gathered significant attention across industry publications, including the AJ over the past few weeks. Featuring the work of 89 participants, including more than half from Africa or the African diaspora with a 50-50 gender balance and an average age of 43, this event includes exhibits from big established names like Theaster Gates and Francis Kerry, and rising star emerging practitioners like Baudelaire Studio in London. This year's curator, the Ghanaian Scottish architect and academic Leslie Loco, has placed Africa and the African diaspora at the centre of the conversation for the first time in the event's history. Announcing her lineup in February, Loco said, quote, In architecture, particularly, the dominant voice has historically been a singular, exclusive voice whose reach and power ignores huge swathes of humanity, financially, creatively, conceptually, as though we've all been listening and speaking in one tongue only. The story of architecture is therefore incomplete, not wrong, but incomplete, and it is in this context particularly that exhibitions matter. They are a unique moment at which to augment change or retell a story whose audience and impact is felt far beyond the physical walls and places that hold it. Dubbed the laboratory of the future, Loco's exhibition is divided into two parts, Force Majeure in the Giardini Central Pavilion, featuring 16 practitioners presenting contemporary African and diasporic architecture, and Dangerous Liaisons in the nearby Arsenale, focusing on collaborative design crossing disciplines and geographies. 
The British Pavilion, led by a group of creatives including this week's guest, Jaden Ali, as well as Joseph Henry, Manisha Kelly, and Samicha Upham, is titled Dancing Before the Moon and explores how, quote, everyday rituals from growing food and cooking to playing games and dancing are tools for diasporic communities to establish spaces and present new ways of thinking about architecture and the built environment. So, Jaden. Can you talk us through the British Pavilion this year? What can visitors expect when they visit? It's really interesting to hear you talk about Leslie's overarching theme. And we were commissioned a little bit before that theme was uh, made public. And yes, our focus is on rituals and customs and activities associated with people from diasporic backgrounds. But I've been thinking about this recently and really I think that is just a reflection an honest reflection on the rituals and the customs and the activities of Britain today. So that's our starting point. To be more explicit about it, the visitor is presented with six large architectural scale sculptural works um, by six artists, including one by myself, an amazing brand new film that fills the central hall and an accompanying soundscape. There's lots of other stuff that goes on around the pavilion, really amazing public program, etc. But those are the key takeaways. And I suppose what we're trying to do is to reflect the world we live in. We're trying to say, we're trying to make space for these rituals. And the reason I think they're important is that often they take place in spaces that they're not designed for. You know, you think carnival takes place in the street. You know, it's not designed for that as a space. Or uh, we've got a really amazing depiction of dominoes, dominoes being played in a pub. It's a pub that is then turned, pub in the day and turned into a dominoes playing centre in the evening where people pull out certain mats. And I think that speaks to a precarity. There's, a, there's an impermanence about that that puts people on the edges. And I suppose what we're saying is like, what happens if we centre these activities? And that's really the sentiment to take away. You know, if architecture was able to take, was able to centre these activities, what would our world look like and how much richer would it be? And that's, I guess, the question I want to ask is, you know, why did you go for focusing on ritual? Why did you and your co-curators zoom in on this in particular as a way of looking at diasporic communities in the UK and beyond? There's a big conversation about why rituals, but I think the focus on rituals comes down to an ambition for the pavilion to speak to a broader audience than architects. And surely that but is... will they come here? Well, that doesn't really matter because I think it's about the sentiment that you, that you take away. There's a whole host of other stuff where we, we're really trying to amplify the reach of the pavilion and I can talk to you about that. But I think the sentiment of architecture, especially, you know, definitely in my practice, definitely in the practice of all of the other co-curators, is about opening up slightly more hegemonic spaces, formal spaces, and making them more accessible. And if architecture is to have a future, it must be able to be readable by the general population, by other people, by the developing population. And I think the focus on rituals allows for an entry point that isn't sheltered. There are no gatekeepers to ritual practice. For instance, I've got this artwork on the portico, and it's a commentary on the rituals of still pan playing and making. Mm-hmm. Okay, very bespoke, still pan playing, right? Not everyone's gonna have that. But the other, 
the, the other kind of ritual that's being referenced in that, in that work is about cooking. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the ritual of going to see my grandparents in Haringey once every other week and congregating around the barbecue. But surrounded by the space in which they've commandeered in London as first-generation immigrants from northern Cyprus, it was a space that was surrounded by vine leaves and olives. You know, it was a, it was a quintessentially Turkish Cypriot space, but the ritual is basically breaking bread. You know, there's all sorts of kind of pageantry that exists around everyday common activities. And I think if you look at it like that, then there surely must be an entry point. A better, a much better entry point than someone talking about a more conventional building, I would say. And just thinking about, obviously, the overarching theme of the Biennale, what does ritual look like for diasporic communities in London, like, right now? And also, what kind of role does ritual manifest in your own life? There's two things there. One is about, like, rituals in, in the UK, <clears throat> in London at the moment. And, and maybe just to speak about the work again, because I'm, so, I'm so attached to it, is that, you know, that history and that ritual of still pan making is also a ritual of carnival. Why is carnival so precarious? You know, it's, it's such a big thing that defines the bigger city on our island. And for decades it's had this sort of threat of it being relocated to a different place or like shut down and exactly. always pandemic, you know, yeah. such crime, etc. This, that and the other. Piped up negative headlines. It should and... it shouldn't be that way. You just have to accept it for what it is. Isn't that amazing that all of these people come out and make all of these fabulous objects and craft and creations and sonics and they own space. They own the public realm in a really incredible way. How empowering is that as a, as a moment? You know? and, and I think making, advocating for, for those spaces to be um, more proliferate and rituals to be able to be accommodated in a broader sense tackles the precarity of, of ritual practice such as carnival. You know, it shouldn't be that, 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 that precarious. Sometimes you hear amazing stories of ritual and it's about people kind of mediating a harsh world, creating a sense of comfort. But where, what about rituals that bring about change? Like, it's one thing to take over the streets of Notting Hill. What about Parliament? Yeah. You know, so where, where is the ritual really creating a tension, like a bigger yeah. tension on a political level? But this is why it comes back to... There are so many narratives that are unpacked in Carnival. You know, that the idea of occupying streets is, is very much aligned to the idea of protest. You'll see we've made an amazing film in the Central Hall, and it's a series of five or six acts. And one of those acts is about procession. And we haven't called that act Carnival. It's about procession. And in that film, you will see footage, archive footage of protest movements because Occupying the street is a form of protest. And if you think back to the genesis, and this is why it's really interesting, you know, this, 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 it's about kind of Britain, it's a reflection on Britain, it's a reflection on Britain today, but it's also, a, and it's a reflection on what Britain can be, but it's a reflection on Britain's past. If you think about Britain's imperial past, well, Britain occupied Trinidad, you know, and it was part of the British Empire, which is why you have stuff like Carnival in the UK, but... The idea of carnival comes from the genesis of the, an occupation by the French before the British. And then, you know, the emancipated slaves 
took on some of those customs as a rebuke to those former slave masters and started to own customs such as carnival, etc. So even as an, at its genesis, carnival was a protest. You know? So of course, yeah, that occupation of Parliament Square, of course it's a ritual. And you can see it, and it is a, it's a ritual for people who practice that. You know, sometimes people dip in and out of it, but for some people this is kind of life, and it will, um, it will capture and chronicle a section of their, of their chapter of their life. You know, this year's uh, Biennale, it's themed Laboratory of the Future. Why is it so significant that the African and African diaspora are placed centre stage of this Biennale? So we have, a, we have a quote in this pavilion called Detour, Detours through the past are necessary to make ourselves anew. I hope I haven't misquoted that. The, what that speaks to, to me, is there is no future without a reflection on the past. Now, of course, the future is optimistic, future-facing, everything associated with that. But you have to look at the past and you have to look at the heritage of Venice, the heritage of the Biennale, the dominant voices and the dominant stories that have been here throughout history. Um, and... It's really important to centre the African diaspora because that saying, that's an inversion of the power dynamics. You know, there have been inherent power dynamics that are proliferate in this space for years. And actually, that's just not genuine. You know, like, black and brown people are the global majority. Do you know, we can't forget that, you know, you know, global majority, but dominant voices. And this is and a global architecture festival, so it's, it's laying claim to that. So We're on the world stage, you know, we're in, the, we're in this space, so you must, yeah, and it's, it's overdue. I mean, it goes back to the Biennales, where, you know, last year's art Biennale, Najdada, it was about kind of uh, equal representation in terms of genders uh, as well. And this year, you get that in terms of kind of like people's origins and heritage, etc. And I think that's a good thing. Just focusing on, in on the UK, um, what is the state of architecture like for the African diaspora in the UK, but also around the world right now? Are there real opportunities for young practitioners to make their mark? Is, is putting on this exhibition, like the one that's happening here in Venice, is that going to elevate practitioners and give people a fair chance to win commissions to get a chance to do to make their mark on the world in that conventional architecture sense i hope so it is a really slick exhibition uh, someone someone and you know we designed it and you know have a big stake in it but i think it's really really well put together and i hope what it does to a certain degree is even if you judged it on design merit, on curation of thought, it says that there is talent in this space. Like there is talent in this, in this space. And that's what we, people need to get over. You need to say, actually, if people are given the opportunity, they're going to produce fantastic things with a tone that you haven't quite felt before. So I'm, I'm, as a broader reflection on the profession, the profession is tricky, right? So... There are not many black or brown-led practices. We tend not to get big commissions. That is changing. Um, it changes through advocacy, and it changes, in my experience, through the work of people who are perceived as gatekeepers and take it upon themselves to take risks. But I'd hope that it's not 
this exhibition helps in framing those appointments not as risks. And what about the class issue as well? Because a lot of working class young people from these backgrounds are doubly or triply held back, right? Can somewhere like Venice be a place for working class culture and the elevation of marginalised practitioners? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it has it has to be. Are you seeing that? Yeah. Well, I can see it in our I can see it in our pavilion. You know, I grew up in a housing association flat where we'd open the fridge and you didn't see much, and you'd only saw the light. You know, <laughs> yeah. so so there's not there's not much in that as a as a space. I think we've used. I think this pavilion is a really sophisticated mode of architectural practice, and that's because it manipulates the various levers at play to create a space. And sometimes those levers are intangible and immaterial, such as the money. The money, the visibility. We've used the commissioning process to showcase and foreground people who have never had the chance to build at this scale. Matt Collins is from Nottingham. You know, like he's, he's half Jamaican from, from Nottingham, amazing designer, never built at this scale before. We've got a really amazing commission, video commission, and that goes to the video commission as well by Issy Nanabien, who used to work for JA Projects and now has got an amazing flourishing art practice. These are people that, who grew up in Hackney, you know, or not, or not in them. There is, I don't necessarily like to play into, the, into this rhetoric where it's, okay, we're, we're talking about race, so let's talk about class, because often they overlap. And they, often, they, they overlap so much, especially with the people that we're, we're showcasing. So in this pavilion, yeah, you're, nobody's, nobody's rich here. A single defiant resident of the iconic Aylesbury estate in South London has taken developers and her local authority to the High Court in a battle against demolition and privatisation of homes. The Guardian reported that 64-year-old Ison Dennis filed papers against Southwark Council and Notting Hill Genesis last week challenging their plans to bulldoze and rebuild what was once one of Europe's largest council estates. It's a move which she says amounts to, quote, social cleansing. The redevelopment's second phase is set to replace 327 social rented homes and 46 right-to-buy properties with 614 new homes, only 163 of which are designated social rent. Dennis's legal case argues that the council unlawfully permitted an alteration to the wording from the initial planning permission, which makes it easier for developers to pass new projects that differ from the original master plan. In a statement, Dennis said the, quote, Aylesbury estate was built for working class communities to live safely and securely. Now it is the site of a battle between our communities and the councils and private developers who seek to demolish and privatise our homes. We cannot allow them to spread insecurity and socially cleanse us. We demand no demolition, no privatisation, refurbishment, security and justice. Her lawyer went on, adding, quote, It is already difficult for communities to play a meaningful role in the planning process, and this is never truer than for a resident of a London estate, which has been a target for demolition by councils and private developers over decades. Developers should not be able to sidestep the findings of the Supreme Court and have a free pass to change what was promised to residents in the historic planning permission. So, Jaden, what's this all about? Why has the Aylesbury Estates regeneration in particular garnered so much media attention, particularly when it comes to accusations of social cleansing? To me, 
it's always going to be a sentimental issue because you are dealing with people's homes. And by dealing with people's homes, you're dealing with people's lives. You're dealing with the backdrop to the spaces in which they got married or they fell in love or they had children, etc. There's such an attachment for our homes. And it's amazing to hear that someone is fighting so passionately for their home to be retained to a certain degree. You know, change is always very difficult. I think it comes down to the fact that the city is forever changing and there are always consistent tensions and there are always so many fears with regards to how estate regeneration has been done in the past. Estate regeneration, for the most part, well, in certain scenarios, is getting better. So you hope people are learning from their mistakes, but you're only ever be being really judged by the work that's been delivered in the past. And I think that will always result in attention. I think it's interesting with this because obviously Aylesbury is quite near to Haygate and I think Haygate was this kind of moment where famously the local authority like sold this nine hectare site for something like 50 million even though they'd spent 40 million decanting everyone so they effectively netted 10 million for their public purse. It was originally home to 1,200 council homes in the Elephant Park redevelopment you know, there's a tiny fraction of that number of council homes and that kind of like in a lot of people's consciousness, people said that was social cleansing or it has changed what Elephant Castle is like when you go there. I mean, I'm not one of them, but some people might say, you know, well, that's fair. That's zone one land. That's prime land. Southwark Council's got limited resources. They need to create a viable town centre for to benefit all the people of the borough. Mm. Um, I mean, is that, uh, do those people have a point? I'm not one of them. Do they have a point though? Or are they, um, is that way of thinking, is, is, that, is that a way of thinking of the past? Because clearly, 15 years ago, that was the future. Projects yeah, like Haygate, like Elephant Park. It yeah. probably isn't the future right now. No. There are a lot of issues with Elephant Park, but there are a lot of good takeaways as well. And that's what I mean about learning from these projects. We can only hope to nudge the dial slightly. I think where we're getting to is that the opinions and the inputs and the sentiments of people that live in a place really must be taken into consideration when the place is to have a new future. Like they can't be neglected. Um, we've been working with Southwark, say for instance, on the Tustin estate. And that was very much, uh, the residents were very much in, involved in that as a process. They have a manifesto. They have so much power in that process. We're slightly detached from it now that it's got to construction phase, but definitely in the design process that we would meet with them every week. They would review everything. Their residence manifesto was read in the same way as any kind of statutory planning document. You know, it had to be really, really, it had to be really robust to a certain degree. So I think that project maybe holds some clues as to how the Ellsbury can be regenerated. But there's also the need to understand that people do need homes. You know, we need to build more new homes. Population is increasing. Um, our cities need to be Refought. And it seems like one of the, the most pressing issues here is that estate regenerations, it often is the case that they're targeting housing where the most marginalised and vulnerable communities are often re overrepresented, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the failings of the housing system, a lot of people are pushed into public housing, which is under-resourced, 
it really should be far more available to a wider segment of society. But what's happening is, is that you're getting projects where it's it seems like it's one group or certain groups of people mm. which are getting you know getting their homes demolished like you know why always go after the disabled person or the the minority person in their house but that's what it looks like you know, that ends up being the reality of it um our campaign is right to call this out as social cleansing is that term maybe maybe is a bit over the top i don't know or is there perhaps is there an alternative which could work for existing residents too where every, I mean, can everybody stay in an estate regeneration? Like, yeah, I mean, it's tr- it's tricky, and I, I'm not so up to speed on on the mechanics of decanting and making sure that people have a continuous home, etc. I know that, for instance, on the Tustin Estate example, and we're talking about two separate estates in, in South London. I'm so proud that the practice has designed 15 new council houses. Like, imagine if you were living in one of the older blocks of the Tustin estate that had been left to fall into disrepair. And one day someone gave you the keys to an amazing four bedroom house, like insane. You've just won the lottery, you know? It shouldn't be the case that, that should, you should feel like a lottery winner. Yeah, yeah. And I think that comes down to, I try to look at these problems and say like, we're looking at the redevelopment now and the regeneration project but we also need to look at the path as to how we got here. And that's continuous decades of decline and a lack of maintenance. So sometimes the, the regen project is, being the sub, is the subject of the conversation where actually we need to think about where we, when we are regenerating the states, we also need to think about how support for states is maintained on going into the future. Otherwise, they do fall into disrepair. And that is, has been a political move over the years, of course. They fall into disrepair and it's people at the lower end of the economic spectrum that end up on the receiving end of this. And of course, there's a lack of trust in that moment. If you've been subjected to that over multiple decades, of course, there's a lack of trust. So from a positive, proactive position, one would say, how do you generate trust? How do you bring people into the process? And how do you really plan for a future so that these mistakes, and not just the mistakes of the regeneration project per se, but the mistakes of estate management don't continue into the future? Bike storms are a new phenomena that many listeners may have already experienced or witnessed in London, typically featuring large numbers of young cyclists dramatically taking over the streets, They're the focus of If the Streets Were on Fire, a new film by Alice Russell, which was reviewed by Navara Media last week. The film follows Bike Storms, an initiative founded by the activist Mac Ferrari Guy. Uh, He founded it to provide a space for young people, particularly those in low-income areas, disproportionately affected by violent crime, to engage in positive activities instead. Despite the work Bike Storms does to redirect young people away from areas with a high potential for violence, their work has encountered significant resistance from the police who, according to scenes depicted in the documentary, attempt to criminalise and arrest its youngest riders. 
This is all in spite of the Metropolitan Police's commitment to violent crime reduction in the capital and significant efforts from the London Mayoral Office dating back to the days of Boris Johnson, which aim to encourage a greater uptake and more diversity among cyclists. Novara's reviewer, Moya Lothian-McLean, wrote, quote, It's a damning indictment of the gulf between the words and deeds of London's political leaders and the Met. These bodies claim they are committed to tackling violent crime and providing spaces for vulnerable young people, but also to broadening diversity in cycling. But the treatment of the bike storms riders shows that, frankly, they haven't got the imagination or will to do either. Even when grassroots activists do all the grunt work of organising much-needed schemes, they find themselves and their charges threatened with criminal action rather than financing. So, Jaden, what do you make of this story? Uh, what does it say about the ways in which young people from marginalised communities use public space and how this is received by the various authorities involved? I must say I love this story. I don't know, but I haven't seen the film and I haven't experienced the bike storm, which I would love to you experience. You haven't experienced the bike storm? Is this when, like, the kids are doing, like, wheelies yeah, down on. the street and then, they're on, and then they're on the handlebars and stuff? Yeah, I've yeah. seen a couple. Yeah. I've seen a couple, but I haven't seen it in storm fashion. I haven't seen... I think they were on their way to the storm. Maybe. Used, used, I've yeah. seen the kind of like the collateral event yeah. on either side. I've seen five or ten or something, you know. What I really want to see is 200. It reminds me of this moment. Um, there's a moment once a year where travellers all congregate mm. and they parade through London. And I encountered them in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, on the on the banks on the north bank of the Thames, and I was riding my my bike next to them. I said to them like, "Where are you going?" And they said to me, oh, "We're off to see the Queen." And I thought he's having a laugh. Do you know what I mean? What's that? And I was cycling with my girlfriend into town, and we went to Buckingham Palace, and they were all outside Buckingham Palace, you know, horse and cart and troughs and eating and just you know, doing their thing. They owned the street, and that's amazing. That is that is amazing. I mean, more more specifically, I do think there is a delicate balance. My mum was a youth worker. I've been built on ideas around youth work. Um, I am the recipient of amazing youth provisions, you know, youth centres. I used to go to youth centres a lot in my, in my life through my mum and, and separately. And I know the work, and I used to be a play worker myself, working with children with behavioural difficulties. So I know what, these, what it takes to put forward these projects. And I feel like there's probably a lack of understanding from the authorities to a certain degree as to kind of what, as to the amount of effort it takes to get something like this off the ground and the oblique value that it creates, you know, in terms of fraternity, in terms of um, role models, in terms of camaraderie, in terms of um, deviation away from crime. Like they just don't understand that because that's not their world. And I think maybe there's a disconnect between kind of policy makers and those that are kind of policing the streets as well. Window boxes, hanging planters and lush front gardens spilling into the streets are integral to London's urban landscape, enhancing ecological diversity and bringing joy to residents. However, despite the efforts made by Londoners to make the city greener, many face excessive and unfair enforcement actions from local councils, particularly on housing estates, which are now the focus of a crackdown on balcony plants across the capital. 
One resident gardener in Camden, previously awarded for her vibrant balcony displays, was given a mere 48 hours to remove her plants due to fire safety concerns. This was reported by UK Daily News. Similarly, on the Vambra Park estate in Greenwich, home to Open City's chief executive and one of Lundown's hosts, Finn Harper, the local council threatened legal action against residents who refused to comply with the eviction of their planters. BBC News, My London and The Evening Standard have covered this story, with support from the 20th Century Society and social media figures like Joris Lachane on TikTok. Harper launched an online petition that has so far garnered over 1,500 signatures challenging the council's decision. They argue that councils are prioritising the appearance of action on fire safety without investigating any significant funds. Alex Wheeler, chair of the Vanbrugh Park Residents Association, said, quote, Officers are waging an unnecessary war on garden gnomes and pot plants, while leaving genuine health and safety issues across the state unactioned. The flats in question were specifically designed to allow residents plenty of room for plants and outdoor seating while ma- maintaining good, safe access. The wholesale destruction of these small gardens would be extremely harmful to the health and well-being of residents, would increase the chance of chronic overheating, deplete local diversity, reduce residents' privacy and distract from a historic conservation area. So, Jaden, what's this all about? Does this appear to be a, does this appear to be a reasonable intervention by the local authority? Um, or are the campaigners right to call the council out for overzealous paring back of their front gardens while other issues are going overlooked? Yeah, I, I, must, I must say, I, I love the idea. What was it? A war on pot plants and garden gnomes. It's happening. It's yeah. happening in Greenwich and in, and in Camden as well, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, there must, it's just one of those scenarios where common sense must prevail. You find that so much in life. It's just, this is just a scenario that needs to be managed in a perfectly reasonable way. Like it should be celebrated that people can commandeer space beyond their homes. They commandeer the path. I often think that the journey between the street and someone's house is really, really important. Like you own that as a moment. It makes you feel pride in the place that you live. And in order, if you want to, if you want to plant, of course, support that. Especially in the context of in which we have kind of an environmental and a biodiversity crisis as well. You know, like this is a, like an awareness and an affinity to land and growing and culture and and growing cultures is surely something we should support. And yet we're we're ended up in this space where someone's being overzealous. Yeah, I'd subscribe to overzealous. But just as an anecdote, that my mum is, my mum took over some space on our on the Peabody estate that she lives on. And she'd done that pre-pandemic, I think. And then they sent her a letter and told her to stop. And she just took over more space. And other residents, and then she split the, got the bed up and she shared it with other residents. And then um, some other residents on the other side of the estate took over another bed. It's just its own thing now. You know, that they, you can't roll back on that. And actually, sometimes you might just need to turn a blind eye. And it does seem like it's a story that's re- very resonant for a lot of Londoners because um, especially on council estates, but also all over the place, people you know, do amazing things with their gardens and it often does spill out and it's a great act of generosity. In fact, you like images of like a little village green with pot plants and things, you know, it's almost like quintessentially what people want to do to create a beautiful space for themselves and their community. Um, 
you what's been your personal experience because i know i think you used to live in the barbican <laughs> this is a place famously that has strict rules even about what you put on your balcony is this um i feel like you stitched me up on this one because there was definitely a moment when i saw you on the barbican terrace from my flat which i don't live there anymore and there were no plants in my, yeah, in my what's balcony going on? planters. You had a letter from the cows. They told you to get rid of the plants. No, I was just on some form of insecure tenancy agreement in which I never had the time to invest in, my, uh, in our planting. I had always wished that, that was the case. And I, I'm in so in awe of the Barbican's culture of their, kind of their, their window boxes. I think that's an amazing thing. It really gives... Imagine the Barbican without the window boxes. It would be nothing, you know. And actually, that's pretty unruly a lot of that stuff you can see when they kind of overflow and overflow into the lake it's in, it's incredible but i'm not so green fingered i must say maybe i'll get there in in my later years so we're on to the culture section we're going to give listeners uh, a little rundown of the things that we're looking out for in the venice architecture biennale okay do you want to go first wow well what's caught your eye on the listings I mean, we've just we just arrived. Um, Let quite me... keen to explore, but I'm sure a lot of listeners maybe they're going to make the trip over here. And um, yeah, what what are the things that you really that really make it worth coming alongside the British Pavilion, of course? Yeah. Well, I think that the space I am chained to the British Pavilion. I've been here for a long time. I've been here for the past week. I have barely ventured out into the city, um, but I hope to do so. I think the Arsenal is a fabulous place to go. I think you should leave half a day to do that because it's much bigger than you ever if you than you ever think. But I want to maybe just plug our neighbours here because it's been so nice putting together this exhibition in the vicinity of the French Pavilion and the German Pavilion and the Canadian Pavilion, and they're all incredibly different. And I think it's a slight microcosm. It's a little microcosm at the top of the hill. It's a slight community. We know each other. There's some really beautiful stuff going on in the German pavilion, which is about the reuse of materials, that they've gathered all the materials from the Arts Biennale of previous years. And there's, some pro- there's a protest. Um, there's a whole kind of lexicon and an essay about protest in, in the Canadian pavilion. And there is just kind of playful action taking place in the French Pavilion. So if you get a chance, come up, visit the visit the British Pavilion and visit our neighbours. Nice one, Jaden. I think I'm looking out for this, um, the V&A Tropical Modernism installation. Uh, this this is the one put together by Nana Biama Fosu and Bushra Mohammed, yeah. uh, Christopher Turner for the V&A. It's all about how um, this distinctive architectural style of modernism was initially developed and employed as a tool to support colonial rule, mm. right? And then before being adapted by West African architects to promote the excitement and possibilities of the era of independence, right? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. obviously, a lot of in our culture of architecture, people like uncritically talk about modernism without yeah. really understanding the origins of it interesting also that Nana and Bush were both teach at the AA yeah. which is that kind of you know international font of modernism yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah so yeah. I feel like for me for that for the overall exhibition theme I feel like that is a really powerful show that I want to see I want to yeah. see that and then on another thread I'm quite interested in this um the Australian pavilion because it talks about all these towns around the world called Queenstown um and again about imperialism how uh, like even in London there's Queenstown Road in Battersea but yeah, like yeah, in Australia yeah. and New Zealand there's I love new... that so simple and um, the Estonian Pavilion which is somewhere around here they've, they've literally hired a house 
uh, architectural collective called B210 have hired a house. They've got some actors in it. It's all about the domestic rituals of space. Wow. It's right up your street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, this so is you should go this, and check it out. This is a great, yeah. this is a great yeah. insight for yeah. me. We've come sure. to the right place. Well, look, Jaden, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the Dundown. I know it's been extremely busy. What a dream. For you. It's been a dream. Yeah. And um, congratulations on the show. And I uh, so hope you could be on the show. I hope you could be on our show again in the future. Soon. Yeah. 100%. Thanks so much for coming. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.